renters are really taking it on the chin as well. And that's in some ways a more severe problem because renters don't have any equity by definition in their property. And they're really living kind of month to month in many cases. So the escalation we're seeing in rents is really hurting. Renters are the group I worry about the most. A lot of our frontline workforce, including in the small business world, consists of relatively young British Columbians who are in the workforce, doing service jobs, helping keep the economy going. And the vast majority of them are renters. So they're really feeling, I think, the pinch of the escalating rental prices that we're going through. I'm Peter McCulley. 57% of the province is employed by small business. We thought it'd be a great time to get Jock Finlayson on the line and talk about a wide-ranging number of topics, including interest rates, affordability, and income tax. Jock is hands down the best-known economist on the West Coast. He is a frequent commentator on economic, business, and public policy issues. The former chief policy officer for the Business Council of Canada now serves with the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Jock Finlayson is our guest on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us today, making time for us today, Jock. Privileged to be here. Looking forward to the conversation, Peter. One thing I've always enjoyed about your columns and your analysis of what's happening as far as the economy goes is that you have the ability to make these very complex issues easy to understand, and I'm hoping that's the case today. Yeah, we'll do my best. The last three years have been unbelievably tough on business, small business in particular, with supply chain issues and staffing shortages. How is small business in British Columbia doing and getting back to pre-pandemic levels, numbers for sales and growth? I think it's a great question. It varies a lot by industry. When COVID hit, it was an extraordinary kind of shock to the whole economy, including the business community. Small businesses were hit particularly hard, I think, because they don't have the resilience and the balance sheets necessary to absorb those kind of shocks. And many of them ended up closing for periods of time, although other parts of North America, the closures lasted longer, but we still had them in 2020. And then the economy gradually came out of the COVID shock. Things began to boom, or so it seemed, in the second half of 2021 and then carrying forward into last year. And that was before interest rates had started to really escalate. So there was a brief window there where I think times were pretty good. And the small business confidence surveys that are run by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business captured a sort of improvement in the sentiment of entrepreneurs and small business operators. That has really begun to deteriorate in the past sort of six to 12 months. It's deteriorating in tandem with an actual significant decline in economic growth as well, both in Canada and here in British Columbia. I think it's a pretty challenging environment right now even for companies that have got back to their pre-COVID levels of revenue and sort of customer traffic through their businesses, they're looking at a much higher cost structure. So profit margins in a lot of industries have been compressed, not everywhere, but certainly in a lot of the small business sectors. We've got labor supply challenges like we've never experienced before, even though the economy has slowed. There's a huge amount of uncertainty out there much of it external to Canada. Obviously, you have war in Europe, turmoil in the Middle East, uncertainty about the U.S. economy, China, very worrisome data coming out of China. So all these things impinge on our small economy here in British Columbia, and that in turn filters down and creates, I think, a pretty complicated environment for a lot of our entrepreneurs. Is that why the provincial government has downgraded their prediction of the growth of the economy by about half? 
It's not just them. All private sector forecasters are doing the same. We don't get real-time data on economic growth at the provincial level, but we do get it for Canada. And the Canadian economy is right on the cusp of an actual recession. What we call real or inflation-adjusted economic output actually shrank in the second quarter marginally. And the preliminary data says it shrank again in the third quarter of 2023. And two back-to-back quarters of declining GDP is actually the technical definition of a recession. I'm not saying BC's in recession, but we're certainly feeling the same slump in economic growth that the country as a whole is experiencing. If you're in small business and looking to borrow money and have a line of credit, what has been happening with interest rates and inflation the last couple of years? That's a good question. We start with inflation. We saw a very surprising surge in the overall inflation rate in both the U.S. and Canada in 2021, extending into last year. So put some numbers on that. The Bank of Canada has set 2% as the target for inflation. We generally met that for two decades up until the COVID shock. And then coming out of COVID, inflation started to accelerate. 2021, it hit 3.4% in Canada. And then last year, inflation jumped up to almost 7% in Canada. In the U.S., it was over 8%. So that caused the central banks to start tightening monetary policy And they did that by lifting their own, what we call the short-term policy rate, which was 25 basis points here in Canada in the summer of 2021. And it's now 5%. So it's gone from 25 basis points to 500 basis points. And all other rates, the rates on business loans, uh, mortgages, GIC rates that are available for savers, government bond yields, which are a measure of how much the government has to pay to borrow money. All these other rates went up in tandem with the Bank of Canada's policy rate. So for small businesses that depend on lines of credit or who have outstanding loans that are not at fixed rates, they're experiencing a very significant increase in the cost of capital and the cost of liquidity. That's really squeezing, I think, quite a few of the businesses here in this market. We're probably going to see, unfortunately, a rise in insolvencies and bankruptcies over the next six to 12 months. It takes time for this to really impact behavior and the exit of firms. So a lot of businesses are struggling just because of the financial environment. Now, inflation has come down. We're looking at maybe three and a half or 4% inflation in BC this year. That's lower than last year. And next year, we'll get down probably into the mid twos. So with that, interest rates will start to drift down, but we're not there yet. We're not likely to see interest rates begin to decline until maybe the second quarter of next year. My advice to people looking to take out loans is wait. Don't do it right now. Wait perhaps until the spring next year when the cost of money might have come down by 100 basis points or something in that range. Everywhere you go, the water cooler talk is either the price of gas or the price of groceries. And I understand that you think for 2023 as a whole, food price inflation may end up at around 5 or 6% which would be less than last year, but still higher than the inflation rate. Yeah, it's a good news, bad news story in the sense that last year was disastrous in terms of the impact of inflation on the food basket, both at the grocery store, but also in restaurants. That was a real shock to a lot of households. Food is the very definition of a necessity for consumers and for households. So the sharp escalation in food prices last year was a real blow. This year, as you point out quite correctly, we're still seeing above average inflation in the price of food, both at the grocery stores and the restaurants. 
but it's come off from almost a double digit increase last year. This year, it's going to be more like in the mid single digits, but that's still too high when you consider that the Bank of Canada is aiming for a 2% overall inflation target. It remains, I think, a real hot button issue. Whenever grocery store CEOs are told to come to Ottawa and appear before a parliamentary committee, we know that food prices have become a political hot potato, and, and that's happened a couple times this year. So is housing affordability, especially here in British Columbia. I read somewhere recently in order to finance a home in the greater Vancouver area, joint income needs to be in the $250,000 range a year. Perhaps you have some opinions on what's happening with interest rates and the various types of mortgages that are being offered? Housing after food prices, which affects everybody, housing is the next hot button economic issue. So I'm glad we're speaking about it. It's a particular challenge, as you point out, in the Metro Vancouver area. Although I would note home prices by Canadian standards are also quite high in the capital region, in the central Okanagan, and even in some other places, smaller communities in certain parts of BC. But the epicenter of it is Metro Vancouver and the lower Fraser Valley. The only way to to state this is for people that are not in the market already, and I'll say more about that in a moment, housing is just simply unaffordable. Home ownership has just moved out of reach, I think, for a huge proportion of the population that aspires to be a homeowner. And it's particularly hurting younger households, young families that want to get into the market. And unless they're prepared to live in a very small accommodation, or they've got support from their families, or they happen to be one of the small number of British Columbians that are earning over $200,000 per household, they're really uh, up against it. And it's a terrible situation. It didn't come about overnight, but it is certainly affecting the whole business environment and I think the quality of life in BC now. Now, there's a huge caveat to that. We should note that two-thirds or more of British Columbians are homeowners, and the remaining third, roughly, are renters. In, in the Metro Vancouver area, that's higher. It'd be closer to 35 36% are renters. Renters are really taking it on the chin as well. And that's, in some ways, a more severe problem because renters don't have any equity, by definition, in their property. And they're really living kind of month to month in many cases. So the escalation we're seeing in rents is really hurting, I think, a lot of rental households in BC. For owners, however, about half of homeowners are mortgage-free in British Columbia. I don't know how many of the people who will be listening to your program fall into that category, but uh, there are lots of folks, even in Metro Vancouver, who either have no mortgages or relatively small mortgages judged against the value of their homes. So for this group of the population, and it's a fairly sizable one, the escalation of interest rates and mortgage rates we've been grappling with has not really had an effect on their well-being. And indeed, if you're a saver and you're looking to put money in savings accounts or GICs, the higher interest rates have actually produced a benefit for many households. So it's a very complex picture across the population of 5.3 million British Columbians. It doesn't affect everybody the same. Renters are the group I worry about the most. A lot of our frontline workforce, including in the small business world, consists of relatively young British Columbians who are in the workforce, doing service jobs, helping keep the economy going. And the vast majority of them are renters. So they're really feeling, I think, the pinch of the escalating rental prices that we're going through. 180,000 people moved to BC from out of the province in the past year or so. Is that what's driving the inventory numbers down so that the rents are being driven up? 
Oh yeah, the, the demographic growth we're experiencing is absolutely jaw-dropping. That's true for Canada, but it's also true for British Columbia. We're looking at 3% population growth rates for a mature advanced economy jurisdiction like BC or Canada to be growing by two and a half or 3% every year in population is, is quite extraordinary. We just don't see that in Europe. We don't see it in most of the US. We certainly don't see it in Japan. We're, we, we're not seeing it in China and Korea. They both have shrinking population. So does Italy. But here we are in Canada, we've got this tremendous population growth, overwhelmingly driven by international migration into the country, and that's true in BC as well. And I'm all in favor of immigration. The country was built on the backs of successive waves of immigrants who've made Canada what it is. But there is an issue of absorptive capacity, and exactly why it is the current federal government has decided we need to double immigrant inflows, which is what they've done relative to 2015 numbers and really open the floodgates, and that's permanent immigrants. So we're, we're moving from 250,000 a year under Harper up to 500,000 a year by 2025 under the current government. And then on the temporary immigration side, they've really opened the floodgates in a way that we've never seen before. So we're getting six or 700,000 more international temporary immigrants coming into Canada, all in a very compressed time period all during a time when we are really struggling with housing supply. Housing was unaffordable before 2022. It's just gotten worse since then. So I really think the federal government has got to step back and rethink uh, their quantitative targets for immigration. Maybe we want to grow them over time. That's debatable, but that's ultimately a policy choice. But we should be doing it perhaps in a more gradual manner, because what's been happening the last two or three years absolutely has contributed to the crunch on housing, and especially in the rental segment, because the vast majority of newcomers to Canada, both permanent, but even more so temporary migrants, they are renters when they get here. They don't go into the ownership market right away. Some do, but the vast majority do not. Another question on the rental pool, Jock, the provincial government has brought in some new regulations governing the short-term vacation rentals, and they say the changes will put more housing into the availability pool. What's your opinion on that? Well, I'm of two minds about that. I don't like the principle. I'm a free market supporter. So the idea of the government saying to homeowners and property owners, here's what you have to do with your property or here's what you can't do, that sort of rubs against me in the wrong way. I don't like the principle of it. Having said that, we are in a housing crisis, especially at the rental end of the market, as I mentioned. So I do have some sympathy with the policymakers feeling the pressure to do something or be seen to do something. These restrictions that have been brought in are not going to solve the problem, frankly. They're really going to be nibbling around the margins of it. But we'll see whether there's enough political support to sustain it. But in an ideal world, we should be seeing more properties put into the rental pool for working families and workers rather than, you know, rent it out to short-term visitors. I, I kind of get that. But, you know, where does it end? Where does this kind of government intervention and control of the economy and of the real estate market where does it end? This is an additional step. The current government tried to tax their way to affordability from 2018 to 2020 with the speculation and vacancy tax and the additional school tax and the foreign buyers tax and a variety of other things. Without debating the merits of each of those policies, it's quite clear it didn't solve the affordability problem. So the only thing that's going to make a real dent, in my view, on affordability is slower population growth back to my comment on immigration, but more importantly, 
increasing housing supply and taking some of the costs out of the development process. That's where we really need to be, I think, putting our effort. And the government is doing some things uh, on that front. Jock, we're seeing more folks in rural areas of the province moving to more urban areas. How does the shift of people within the province affect the economy of the province? Well, it's a very complicated picture. Younger people in Canada, and not just Canada, by the way, right across all the advanced economies, younger people, particularly once they get educated, have been migrating to metropolitan areas for decades. It's not a new phenomenon by any means, but it's continuing, even though the cost of living is much higher in these metro areas, but there's a lot more job opportunities as well as educational options. So it makes sense. We live in a free society and we want people to move and work where they feel it makes sense for them. So I don't see migration within the province or Canada as a public policy problem that calls for government intervention. But it probably would be better, especially around immigration, given the numbers of immigrants we're bringing into Canada, it probably would be better if they were dispersed a bit more widely across the country. Right now, three quarters of uh, new international immigrants to Canada are settling in five or six cities, of which Metro Vancouver is one, but also Calgary, Ottawa, Greater Toronto, Montreal, etc. And that's great. It you know injects some dynamism into the local market, provides new workers. A lot of other communities could probably benefit if they were getting a little more of that international immigration inflow. So I do see an argument from a kind of public policy point of view for trying to encourage more newcomers to the country to consider living in places other than the the biggest five or six cities. You can't force them, so it's about carrots rather than sticks. But I think it would be better for the country long run and the province if we had a bit wider dispersion of newcomers instead of having everybody settle in Metro Vancouver. When Today in BC continues, Jock Finlayson talks about income tax, exports and BC's aging population. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Jock, when it comes to exports outside of BC, what are British Columbians exporting? I mean, we all know about wood product exports, but what are some of those other products and where are we exporting to? How do the numbers break down in terms of those resources? Well, it bounces around a little bit from year to year and depending on commodity market cycles. But if we step back and say, look at the last five years, we actually had record exports last year at 2022. So that was good. That helped actually to give us some economic growth. About half our merchandise exports go to the U.S., 55%, something in that range. And most of the rest goes into Asia, primarily China and Japan, but also Korea and Southeast Asia. Our export basket is quite diversified, but natural resources are still at the core of it. Mining and energy is now the biggest piece. Actually, it's eclipsed forestry. That trend is going to accelerate, I think, in the next few years because of the shrinkage of the forest industry because of the pine beetle and the impact of government policy. The the fiber supply is really under downward pressure, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. And the pine beetle played a big role in that as well because it destroyed a fairly large chunk of the commercial forest in the interior of the province. And BC's become a very high-cost, uncompetitive place for a lot of lumber-producing companies. So 
it's difficult to justify putting capital at work here at the moment. So we're seeing a lot of investment out of BC by our local companies. But still, forestry is number two. It's still 30% or so of our merchandise exports. Energy and mining would be closer to 40 And then uh, agriculture and a diverse array of manufacturing industries would make up the rest of our merchandise exports. We also export services, transportation services, professional services, environmental services, finance, tourism, international tourism. That's an export. If you sell a two-by-four to the U.S., you get an income flow into British Columbia from the American customer. But if an American family visits Victoria and stays in a hotel and eats in restaurants and spends money, that's an export for us as well. So international tourism is quite an important export for BC. It was eviscerated during COVID, but it has been coming back. So pretty diverse export basket, but I would say natural resources remain foundational. We sell a little over half to the US and the rest around the world. It's not an export on purpose, but the brain drain is a very real thing professionals leaving for greener pastures south of the border or other countries. At the same time, we have professionals coming in, finding problems with credentialing for various professions as they enter the country. So what needs to happen there? Brain drain is is a longstanding Canadian problem. We've almost always been in the position where we lose a certain slice of our most talented and ambitious young kind of adult population. That's really the key. Canadians who get educated in the United States. I'm actually one of them. The vast majority of them stay down there. They don't actually come back to Canada. We lose those kind of skilled workers and professionals once they've gotten a taste of the American market. Some come back, but a lot of them stay. We certainly offset that with high levels of immigration. You're right. So the brain drain, all we can do to stem that, and I actually think the brain drain is going to get worse in the next five years. So I do worry about that a bit. We've got to create an economic environment where the opportunities will be here for talented, ambitious people, and then not tax them to death. Our current government in Ottawa, and I would say our government in Victoria, they look at skilled workers as a sort of walking, breathing ATM machine. They're just absolutely kicking the daylights out of highly skilled people in terms of the income tax structure here, especially on employment income. It's a bit different for capital gains and dividends. Those tax rates are are noticeably lower. But for earned income, employment income, we're taxing people making 250000 bucks a year as if they're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. In fact, Bill Gates faces a lower tax rate living in Seattle. He faces a lower marginal tax rate than a successful engineer working in Vancouver who's making, say, two hundred and fifty or $300,000 a year. So I really think it's out of whack. So creating an economy, an economic environment that will afford skilled people lots of opportunities to invest and grow and build their careers, and then maybe having a little friendlier tax climate for talent would help, I think, to deal with the the risk of brain drain. On the foreign credential side, you're absolutely right. The the government of Canada has decided that immigration is going to be the key to economic growth and labor force growth in Canada. Whether that's the right choice or not, we could debate, but it's their call. It's therefore imperative that we select immigrants who are going to have a high chance of succeeding here and that we give them every opportunity to do so. Unfortunately, the history in Canada is that we welcome a lot of newcomers, but we don't make it very easy for them to apply their skills and talents here, especially in various regulated professions and occupations. And so we need to break down those barriers. I give the BC government some credit here. Premier Eby announced uh, last month some measures to really bring the hammer down on occupational 
licensing bodies to reduce the barriers that they put in place that make it much harder for newcomers to practice their occupation or profession here. For example, requiring that you have Canadian work experience. Talk about a catch-22. By definition, an international migrant coming here who wasn't already in Canada isn't going to have Canadian work experience, whether they're a nurse or an architect or an electrician or whatever. So we need to be smart, I think, about how we apply these requirements and try and minimize the barriers rather than creating just endless amounts of red tape and bureaucracy. So governments are starting to act on that, including BC. And I think in the next few years, it's going to get easier for educated newcomers to find their way in our labor market. I certainly hope so, because we need that. You talked about federal and provincial income tax and high levels. Every second or third federal election since I can remember, and that goes back away, somebody floats the idea of a base tax of, say, 20% across the board as a federal income tax or just a tax in general. Is that a good idea? If not, why not? I like what I would call a simpler, flatter income tax structure. Not everybody agrees with that, but my leanings are very much in that direction. I don't think I just have one rate. I could see a 15 or 20% federal income tax rate that starts at maybe thirty dollars or $40,000 a year of income. People below that, you could exempt from any income tax. And then at the very high end, maybe three dollars or $400,000 a year, I could see that you have a second kind of rate lower than what we do now, but higher than the base rate. I think in Canada, there'd be a lot of political reluctance to have a, a pure flat tax rate that would apply at an income of 50000 but also $50 million. So I could see maybe two different rates, and then I'd get rid of a lot of the other measures that are in the income tax system. I remember when my father passed away, I went through his papers. I found an income tax form that he had filed in like 1950 or something before I was born. And it was two pages long. He was able to fill it out and file it himself. He didn't have to use an accountant or a financial advisor. And it was so much simpler than the horrific mess that we we have created over the last several decades with just layers and layers of special provisions and deductions and very complex rules that create lots of work for accountants, but they don't necessarily do much for our economy. So I'd like to see not just lower income taxes, but a simpler structure that would create less work for accountants and allow more people to do their own taxes simply and maybe pay a little less than they are today. Seniors now make up about one-fifth of the population of British Columbia, which will likely be 25% in the next 15 to 20 years. I could see that businesses built around an aging population would be well-positioned to take advantage of that. But how does the province handle the cost of taking care of the aging population? There's an elephant in the room type question that I know keeps uh, a lot of government officials up at night. They don't like to talk about it publicly very much because it's an awkward subject and there's no simple answer to it. But it's hard to believe we can sustain the current mix of pension and health programs and how we fund them, given the demographic trend that you pointed out. We are not in a society where the government can look after everybody. People have to be, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, will agree, people do need to plan for their own retirement, make the savings, make the investment choices that will put them, if they possibly can, not everybody can, but those who can need to. And we need to have incentives in place that encourage people to save for retirement. We have those in Canada. We've done a decent job of that. The Trudeau government and the provinces have 
expand to the Canada Pension Plan. So in the future, people will get more from CPP than the current recipients are. In other words, they'll get a larger share of the average industrial wage. It's going to go up from a quarter to a third, I think, in the next several years. I've got mixed views on that, but that will help fund retirement. The big one, though, is health care. And it's very clear to me that the demand for health care in our public system vastly exceeds the supply. This is particularly true today, but it's been true, I think, for quite a long period of time. And we have a system at the moment here in BC where the government doesn't want people to have the option to spend their own after-tax dollars looking after their own health care. I find that very curious because it's crystal clear that the public system just isn't working for a large number of people in BC. And politicians in Victoria will stand up and say they're going to make it better. But I have to confess, I'm skeptical on that. Um, sure, they want to make it better, but I'm not sure they have the capacity to do so. I think we really need to be looking at, uh, and this is a personal opinion, this is not a view shared by my employers, either present or previous, but I think Canada should be looking at European countries, not the US, but at various European countries that allow a lot more flexibility in the provision and funding of healthcare. They have a basic system available for everybody, so universal access, but they do allow people to spend money on their own health care if they want to do so and get access to specialized services. We've decided here we're not going to do that, but I really question whether that's sustainable long term. Well, let's talk about a sector of the industry that is growing. It seems in leaps and bounds. Everywhere I look, I see more and more electric vehicles on the road, charging stations. We've got smart houses being built now. You can control them off your phone. The move to electrification is moving forward. Are we positioned for that growth in British Columbia? I think we're in pretty good shape. I agree with you, electrification. If there's going to be a push to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to deal with climate change in a major way, as opposed to at the margin, the only way we're going to get there is through a big push for electrification of the whole energy system. Even though we have BC Hydro and we actually have relatively low-cost electricity in BC compared to many jurisdictions, but electricity is only about a fifth of all the energy that we consume because electricity is essentially used for limited purposes today of baseboard heating and you know providing lighting and basic power for homes and businesses, but it doesn't meet a lot of the other needs for energy in the industrial sector, for transportation. A lot of the heating of buildings comes from fossil fuels, et cetera. If we're going to replace fossil fuels in, say, the transportation sector, it's going to come about through penetration of electric vehicles. And we're seeing that trend worldwide, including here in Canada. And the BC government just announced an acceleration of their mandate for requiring all new vehicles that are sold in the province to be electric or hybrid. They've moved the date up for that rule to come into effect. The question, though, I think is, can the industry supply enough electric vehicles? There's pretty long waits now to get them. Secondly, how much do they cost? Not to operate, but to purchase. The thing about electric vehicles is it's typically going to be cheaper to run once you've got it, because you don't have to fill your tank and deal with the complexities of the internal combustion engine for maintenance and repair. But there's a higher sticker price, quite a bit higher sticker price at the point of purchase even with government subsidies thrown into the mix. So we're seeing actually demand for EVs is trailing off a bit from the projections that the auto producers had a year or two ago. We're seeing some announcements coming out of the big three, but also BMW and others. 
that they're ratcheting back uh, their planned production of electric vehicles because they don't think the demand is going to be there. So in the long run, that's where we're going to go. But whether these politically manufactured targets for electric vehicle take up and penetration are achievable, I think is, is quite debatable. In the long run, we're going to electrify transportation, but not necessarily on the timeframes that have been set by politicians. I'd like to thank Jock Finlayson for being our guest on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google podcasts. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.